0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing?
1: Specifically good.
0: Okay. Well, let's specifically get into it. What are we doing this week?
1: Well, this week, James, we're going a bit more general. And we're going to be talking about bacteremia, bacteria in the blood, bacteremia, nice and simple. And we're going to talk through this a bit of a structure. So first, we're going to talk about definitions. So the definition of bacteremia and also touch on some other definitions, such as septicemia, bloodstream infection. Then we're going to talk a little bit about how bacteremia occurs, what the process is that pathogens go through in order to get into the blood specifically looking at bacteria, but touching on other bloodstream infections. Then we'll talk about the diagnosis of bacteremia, and specifically blood cultures. So when do you take blood cultures? How do you take blood cultures? How many blood cultures should you take? And then finally, a little chat about once your blood cultures go from the patient to the laboratory, what happens to them? And then finally, we'll briefly touch on management of bacteremia, but we won't talk about that for too much detail because really... The management of any infective etiology is specific to the pathogen you're dealing with
0: all right so let's start with the definitions then so what do you mean by uh, bacteremia
1: well i think it's just the presence of bacteria in the blood it's very easy to, to define and it's very specific
0: that's so, what it says in the tin yeah
1: i guess yeah, so i mean I'm, that's well, what we're big fans of on this podcast
0: well you you tell me how does it differ from uh more kind of old-fashioned term like septicemia
1: Yeah, so septicemia, it's an outdated term. It's not very clear, I'd say. One definition you could use is a systemic disease caused by the spread of microorganisms and their toxins being the circulating blood. Mm -hmm. Um, The term septicemia sort of means, I guess, in a more simple term, there's something in the blood that causes sepsis.
0: I guess anybody who's read the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines recently knows that septicemia has... Uh, kind of fallen out of fashion uh, because of its kind of non-specificity, really. Septicemia just, you know, it can apply to bacterial infections, but it can also apply to fungal infections. It can apply to systemic viral infections, you know, like think Ebola and the viral hemorrhagic fevers. It's very non-specific and it means different things to different people. And so people have been advocating moving away from this kind of non-specific terminology and using, you know, things like, Uh, sepsis and severe sepsis, uh, which have more rigorous definitions in in the surviving sepsis guidance, which are more reproducible between uh, clinicians as well. Uh, What And and bloodstream infection or BSI?
1: Yeah, so this is a good catch-all term. And I, I think, you know, generally speaking, we would refer to a bacteremia if we knew it was a bacteria, but when you're looking for pathogens, you can use the term bloodstream infection, and it's a catch-all, and it's really anything in the bloodstream that causes infection. So that could be a bacteremia, but it could also be a fungemia, viremia, or parasitemia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess technically it could, but in reality, bloodstream infection is usually used to refer to bacterial and, and fungal infections. It's kind of assumed that if you've got Uh, most viral infections you'll have some level of viremia doesn't necessarily mean that you are uh, significantly unwell let's say
1: Mm. yeah it's i think it's quite a helpful way of referring to it it's very clear what it is and i think everybody understands it Um, and we should just briefly touch on the definition of sepsis because you mentioned that so that is a life threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Instead of saying septicemia, which is going to be confusing, you can say the patient has a bacteremia that's definitive. And then you can say they have sepsis. So they could have a bacteremia and have sepsis together. They could also have a bacteremia without sepsis. You know, it's certainly possible. Um, You know, you pick up a a low virulence pathogen in the blood patient might not be that well, actually.
0: Yeah. uh, I suppose the classic example would be a, um, coagulase negative staph um, although they're, they they tend not to reflect true bloodstream infections do they they're usually skin contamination
1: yeah but if you did have say uh, infective endocarditis, coagulase negative staph you find it in the blood patients often it may be it's quite indolent so it comes on slowly over a long period of time mm-hmm. so i think that's all we need to talk about definitions the only other thing that i uh, thought was interesting was to just mention that sepsis isn't uh, a medical term and it comes to the greek word sepsin uh, which means to make putrid
0: mm, which i didn't know there we go so why is it important why do i care if my blood culture is, uh, turns up positive for the same organism that i've grown in an abscess or that i think is infecting somebody's lung well it's a uh, Uh, a marker let's say of, of worsening severity so if you've got localized infection somewhere in the body that's one thing affecting one organ system or even two organ systems that's that's one thing but when you get organisms in the bloodstream it implies a failure of local control and that then means that the organism is overwhelming your local immune response uh, but also, that has the opportunity to now spread to other parts of the body and cause disseminated infection. And so, this is why infection specialists are so uh, obsessed with, uh, with identifying and treating bloodstream infections in general. And we're focusing on bacteremias here in particular. So, Callum, now you're going to tell us a little bit about how you become bacteremic, the, the sort of um, pathogenesis of bacteremias. Yeah,
1: I think it's useful to just think through the bacteria's journey from outside of the body or potentially inside the body to the state where it's causing infection in the blood and then what the purpose of that is briefly as well. So essentially, you've got a pathogen or a potential pathogen. um, So some organisms that are part of our normal flora, um, so living in the gut, can become pathogenic given the right circumstance somewhere outside of the sterile compartments of the body. So whether that's the air or the patient's skin or their gut, they find a way to enter into the body. Um, So that's through some sort of body surface, whether that's the skin or mucous membranes or the epithelium of the lung, the gut, uh, the reproductive tract. There's lots of different ways to come in, but essentially the process is the same in all of these. They... Either enter through one of these uh, barriers directly through normal tissue, usually by exploiting some part of their surveillance factors, or take advantage of circumstance. So, say there's trauma—you know, you've got a cut in your skin, you've got an ulcer in your mouth.
0: Yeah, or, or uh, another pathogen has created a route of entry. Mm, so, the yeah. classic example would be flu. Influenza causes this kind of necrotizing pneumonitis, which weakens the the lung epithelium. And then that uh, allows other bacterial pathogens, classically Staph aureus, to invade and cause this kind of necrotizing uh, pneumonia too.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. The sort of synergy sometimes between pathogens. Hmm. Uh, so they disrupt this, this epithelium and uh, enter into the tissue initially. And there they'll encounter a lot of parts of the immune system. So part of the immune response is really just the the barrier that they've entered through. Getting through that, there's parts of the innate immune system. So it's just stuff that's always on first response. And that's things like antimicrobial substances. So things like antibodies, complements, things that are immediately available. Uh, there also be cellular immunity, things like macrophages and the tissue. These are often um, as histiocytes. And then there's other physical barriers within tissues so things like gel matrix. So the, the the structure of tissue is such that it stops her or another one would be like fascial layers. Um, so if you've got a sort of deep fascia that can sometimes stop the spread of infection.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then all these tissues are also a, a surveillance system of, of antigen presenting cells. So these are cells that have the ability to digest alien proteins and present them to the rest of the immune systems. The classic ones are, Examples would be uh, Langerhans cells, which are a subset of dendritic cells that live in the uh, in cell tissues. But macrophages themselves are antigen-presenting cells uh, as well, and that's part of the reason that most tissues have tissue macrophages at some point. So, the lungs got type two pneumocytes, the liver's got Kupfer cells. They're they're kind of everywhere, and part of their their job is not just hunting and destroying pathogens that invade, but also alerting the rest of the immune system to. Uh, to the invasion.
1: Mm. So, you know, there's quite a formidable defense system in tissue. And usually if you've got a local infection, so say cellulitis, the bacteria try to overcome this by just replicating really quickly. Mm. Uh, And this can allow them to sort of set up a state of infection. Um, If the immune defenses fail in the tissue, um, either because the pathogen overwhelms them or because they find ways to, the immune response. The next step, generally speaking, will be to move into the lymphatic systems. Now, this is part of the immune defense as well in terms of the lymphatic system really there is to clear out waste product and get fluid away from tissues, but also to convey any sort of alien proteins, as Jane puts it, to lymph nodes, which uh, contain large numbers of phagocytic cells and other immunologic defenses. So that's part of the immune response and from entering the lymph node if the pathogen again manages to get past this defense they can then invade into the blood the alternative is that the organism can straight from the tissue go into capillaries and uh, use that to get into the blood there's lots of different routes to getting from tissue to blood uh, but generally that's the path that microorganisms are going to take there's some exceptions so thinking about you know certain insect bites so uh, malaria is not a a bacteria but it's you know a, a, certainly a parasite and that would cause a parasitemia generally by being injected into the capillary and um, making its way through the blood that way. Mm. So the route into the blood is, is varied but it generally involves getting past some states of the immune system. The pathogenic Uh, other examples would be intracellular pathogens so things like listeria brucella these are intracellular pathogens which um, will hide inside um, the cells that are meant to be hunting them Mm -hmm. Um, other things to think about with with bacteremia as well is that um, although we're talking mainly about pathogenic bacteria there can also be transient bacteremia this is common so we know that when you for example brush your teeth that causes small amounts of trauma around the teeth and the gums and this can lead to normal bacteria that live in the oral flora uh, getting into the blood and usually it's just filtered out in the uh, spleen and liver mainly uh, by macrophages which form part of what is called previously the reticular endothelial system or the mononuclear phagocyte system and this just refers to all those specialised cells around the body which Jane mentioned a couple of earlier on uh, which are involved in recognizing and destroying pathogens. Yeah. Um, some organisms are, are quite interesting in terms of they've adapted specifically to use this part of our immune response. So, Salmonella typhi, or uh, the ty- uh, organism that causes typhoid, uh, is a good example of an organism that in- sort of invades the body through the gut and then causes infection within the reticuloendothelial system, and from there causes mm. a secondary. Uh, bacteremia, again, spreading around. Um, once the organism, the bacteria, has got into the blood, um, a lot of these bacteria will then invade uh, a secondary organ. So the reason or exactly how they do this is unclear whether it's specific to do with local factors or there's inflammation at the site, which causes lower blood flow or whether there's particular sort of signaling goes on that causes the bacteria to go there. Not clear why, but uh, oftentimes this is to do with how the bacteria spread. Mainly viruses, as an example, following on from a systemic infection, rabies uh, spreads from the neurological uh, tissue in the brain into the salivary glands. And that's how it spread is through the bite of of one mammal to another so you know once they've had this sort of second this sort of bloodstream secondary uh, uh infection phase they often go into a tissue which allows them to spread uh, i've got another example so leptospirosis yeah. that uh, is in the blood and then it spreads it goes into the kidneys and comes out through the urine and um that's how it spreads through mm. many mammals as uh, particularly rodents uh, through urine so again it's you know it's the, the purpose from the pathogen's perspective of being in the blood is sometimes to get to another part of the body so that it can then spread. Uh, and other times is, you know, where it's more of a um, opportunistic uh, bacteremia. So the, a good example would be E. coli bacteremia, which is very common, you know, spreading from the gut um, or somewhere in the abdomen, it gets into the blood. It's not, that's not following a sort of set purpose. It's more by accident that that's happened. You know, there's, there's lots, obviously when we're talking about bacteremia there's a, a range of modes of entry to the blood a range of uh, essentially whether it's purposeful or accidental on the organism's behalf uh, some of the time that is to leave the body and sometimes it's just patients very unwell
0: uh, Let's talk about diagnosis now though for bloodstream infection I think it should be fairly obvious you need to take a blood culture, that's the diagnostic test of choice I think most people listening will have seen these these are the large bottles which already have some fluid in them that's a kind of a nutrient broth uh, is my understanding that will keep the cells alive and you uh, add to that uh, usually about 10 mils of blood to each tube there's one for aerobic uh, organisms and there's one for anaerobic organisms and then you send off to the lab and they will be placed in an incubator and I'll just tell you a little bit about what happens when the blood culture bottle gets to the lab. So they, they put them in an in incubator and there's, uh, it's kind of a, a big rack with with hundreds of kind of cylindrical holes and uh, each tube is shoved into a uh, one of these holes. And at the end of it, there's a laser that's kind of looking for a color change of a, a disc that's been placed at the bottom, the uh, blood culture bottle. So if you look at the underside, it's got this kind of odd color to it. Now, that changes uh, colour when there's excessive amounts of carbon dioxide in the tube. And that implies that something is growing, using up all the oxygen and producing CO2. So when that changes colour, the incubator's uh, laser will, will detect that and it will flag it up as positive. And then the lab technicians will, will take it, get a little sample of, the, of blood out of the tube uh, put it under a microscope and see if they can uh, see any organisms and that's when you do your microscopy. They'll then continue to, they'll take another sample, uh, put it on an agar plate and then incubate it and see if they can grow the organism uh, and that'll take another day and if they do grow it they'll then be able to identify it and then run another antibiogram. That will take another day. If nothing happens then at forty hours they'll Usually, this varies from place to place, but usually at 40 hours, they'll put a report saying this is negative. Uh, They will then continue to incubate it, but not tell you, for usually another three days. Is that right, Cal? Yeah, standard incubation
1: period for a body culture is five days.
0: Yeah. And then if it goes positive, they'll they'll let you know. But if not, they'll then just discard those tubes. There are a few situations when we would ask them to culture them for longer, if we're looking for slow-growing organisms.
1: Melioidosis would be an example of an organism that you would want to extend an incubation for.
0: Yeah, Burkholderia right. pseudomallei. In fact, when I was working in the Northern Territory where there's a lot of melioidosis, um, blood culture ribaldors were incubated as standard, I think, for 10 days, hmm. if I remember correctly. Let's talk about false positives, though, because there are other reasons why your blood culture might flag positive, and I think it's important that uh, infection clinicians know about that. So the commonest reason I would say is that the patient has a high white cell count when mm. the blood culture is taken. You're taking it for a reason. The patient's probably septic and their white cell count is raised. You can't do much about that, but the white blood cells will consume oxygen and produce CO2 the same as uh, bacteria, probably to a lesser extent, uh, but that will nonetheless trigger a color change and, and cause the tube to flag up. The lab techs will then uh, do the microscopy and find nothing and will then report it as new organisms seen then put it back in and incubate it for a bit more. Uh, but then the other reason, then these reasons will compound and interact, is if you've overfilled the tube. So I'm guilty of doing this when I was, uh, when I was younger. I basically assumed that more blood was better Uh, for, you know, detecting the organism. So I would shove as much blood into the tubes uh, as I could. And even when I didn't do that, the, the way that I got the blood in was I would, you know, get my syringe and I would stick it in the top and I would just wait for the vacuum to pull out as much blood as I felt the tube wanted. And this may be a mistake because actually the way that the companies work is they actually put a 12 mil vacuum in the tubes so that if you do that, you'll automatically take a couple of mils more than you should be putting into them. Um, So uh, that again, because there will be more white blood cells which will be uh, respiring uh, in in the tube, will make it more likely that you will trigger a false positive, yeah. Uh, so, we worry a lot about underfilling, don't we? Because, you know, underfilling will lead to reduced yield. But similarly, overfilling can be an issue as well, although I don't think it's as much of an issue.
1: So, yeah, false positive blood cultures. And then I guess not really false positive, but other reasons why you make a blood culture that's positive with nothing seen on the gram stain would generally be things like candidemia is certainly a possibility. Candida uh, can cause a blood culture to go positive and uh, they're quite hard to see in grams. Uh, Camphlobacter, mm. that'd be another one. So they they don't stain very well in gram staining. So they can sometimes be difficult to make out. Uh, mycobacterial infection, particularly taken from a line and there's maybe a, a fast growing atypical mycobacteria there. You know, Tuberculosis, if the, the patient had um, uh, millary TB, would be a possibility. Um, so there's lots of reasons, but that, you know that's the process that the blood cultures go once they get to the laboratory. It does take a wee bit of time. Um, I guess in the future, there's going to be improvements mm. to that process. Hopefully we'll be able to get identifications quicker, potentially with direct uh, multi-TOF on blood culture or PCR. And some site centers are already doing that. So you know, watch this space. Yeah. I think blood culture diagnostics is going to improve um, over the next 10 years. So yeah. I think that's the journey into the laboratory, and a little bit about false negatives. So the next thing I want to talk about was when should we take blood cultures, and by this I mean which patients and at what time. I think there's a lot of hearsay and uh, culture around this, uh, but I'm not sure it's really based on any evidence. And also, I'd say a lot of the time people who should get blood cultures don't get them.
0: I'm surprised sometimes when I'm being uh, asked for advice. How many people have come in? They've been sick, and they've uh, not had uh, any microbiological investigations taken, let mm. alone a blood culture. And by the time that they're uh, chatting to us, because they don't know what's going on, the patient's been on antibiotics for 48 hours. And uh, the chances of getting a, a positive yield, even if the patient is bacteremic, when they're on antimicrobials that target the organism is, is virtually zero. But anyway, yeah, let's let's chat about... Um, when to take so if you suspect bacterial infection as the cause of the patient's presentation you should take blood cultures at that point preferably before you give antibiotics so that's not just people that are uh, have septic shock or look unwell or even those that have a fever that's anybody that looks like they're bacterial infected patients don't read the textbooks they don't know that they're meant to mount a fever and look poorly when they're bacteremic um, some patients are even mm-hmm. compromised. our patients are all getting older and old people tend not to mount as uh, as high a fever uh, and their their signs of sepsis tend to be much more subtle than in younger people certainly if they are febrile yeah you should take some blood cultures but don't let their not being febrile uh, be mm-hmm. a reason not to if you suspect that bacterial infection could be causing uh,
1: their and presentation, I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier on about why do we want to know if something bacteremic? And you were talking about, you know, the severity of illness, but it's also in these complex patients where people aren't getting better from an infection. You, you want to, if any microbiological test, you want to find the organism not only because it will give you a lot of detail about the natural history of that infection. So if you get Staph or which we've talked about before, you know what that's going to cause. You know the complications you're going to see. You know the you know the duration of therapy you need to give to prevent relapse. Um, so you, you need to know that. But also if someone's not getting better and you've got an organism that you've grown and you've got an antibiogram that says it's sensitive to the treatment you're on, you know, you know they've probably not got source control or something along this line. So it's really important to get yeah. it. So yeah, I guess patients that we should take blood cultures from would be anybody who might have bacteria in their blood, and that's anybody with a bacterial infection. So not just those are pyrexial, like you said. Anybody where you're going to start broad-spectrum antimicrobials. You've got a febrile. Potentially, someone's got a line uh, in, so you say they've got a long line, like a central line or a pick line, something like these. Uh, lines and it's not working properly you should probably take cultures from that and from the periphery to look for line infections especially immune compromised patients and specific other indications so people are presenting with malaise um, and you're worried about say typhoid they've traveled or um, someone's got severe diarrhea and you might be worried about Campylobacter or bacteremia you know i think there's there's a huge range of reasons that you should take blood cultures and i think you should really low threshold for taking them and most patients are going to be yeah. negative, but yeah. in those few patients where they're positive, it will completely change the management.
0: Hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, so let's talk about technique, how uh, to do it. Now, your department will have a protocol, which I essentially just advise that you find and follow mm. uh, to the letter. Most people will have been taught how to take blood cultures in med school or when they're doing ANP or physician assistant training. The way that we try and and teach people to do it is something called aseptic no-touch technique. So you uh, make the skin as clean as possible and then you don't touch the bit of skin that you're about to go in uh, to. This is sometimes easier said than done, but we're we're talking about uh, uh, an idealized, perfect 70 kilogram patient with enormous veins here. Uh, And then uh, I previously talked about uh, how much to put in the bottle. Let's see a little bit of something on uh, skin prep. So there is a reasonably recent uh, document on optimising uh, blood culture collection, talking about the kind of different factors which, which reduce contamination rates. And one, in one section, they mentioned a systematic review talking about the different kinds of skin prep that there are. Adding alcohol to iodine is more effective than uh, povidine-iodine alone. Uh, alcoholic chlorhexidine is more uh, effective than povidine-iodine alone. And uh, in general, alcohol antiseptic products are more effective than ones that don't contain alcohol. There doesn't seem to be a head-to-head between chlorhexidine-alcohol and iodine-alcohol, but in most departments now, what you'll see is that there's these little sachets of chlorhexidine with alcohol those are the ones that you should be using for uh, for blood culture sampling. And then in terms of where to take it, um, there are differences in, there, there are basically three ways that you could take it. You could take it through the peripheral skin, you could take it through uh, uh, peripheral cannulae that you're about to put in, an intravascular cannula, or you could do it through a central line. And again, what they, they report is that Contamination rates with skin organisms is lower with venipuncture. It's between 1% and 7% uh, compared with blood that's been drawn through an IVC which where it's about 3% to 13%. So it's actually quite a marked difference in, in, in doing it. And I don't really know how to explain this because I would have sort of assumed that if you're putting in an IV line, it would have been more sterile. But I, when I first read this paper, I, I thought about a potential confounder, which is if you're sticking in a cannula and then taking off the blood cultures uh, at that time, it could be that you are doing it because you're in a rush because the patient is more unwell and you may not be using perfect skin preparation when doing so. Um, now, we do sometimes advocate for people to uh, take uh, blood through central lines and, and things like that and, and pick lines. Uh, for the purposes of, of diagnosing line-associated uh, infections. And certainly if that's your only source of access and the patient has terrible venous access, you're kind of uh, obligated to try and take them in as sterile a manner as possible. Uh, but I think that's interesting information for people to know that taking them peripherally, not through a cannulae, is less contaminating than doing it through a, uh, through a line that you're putting in. Let's talk about uh, how many samples to take. So one set is composed of two bottles, one aerobic and anaerobic. We have standards for microbiological investigation in the UK, and it actually says to take two at a time if you're uh, worried the patient is septic. Uh, And there is an argument to take more than two, to take probably three is the maximum that you would advocate taking at any one time and the reason for this is that the more essentially the more blood you take the more likely you are to detect low-level bacteremias so three sets are better than two which are better than one uh, for that purpose the other reason to think about is if you are taking blood cultures because the patient is septic probably the next thing you're going to do if you haven't done it already is shove them on broad spectrum antibiotics and if you do that and you then try and take some blood cultures, basically an hour after afterwards. The patient's blood is now uh, swimming in antibiotics. Any blood that you take will also have a small amount of antibiotic in it, and that will go into the blood culture bottle along with the organism that you're trying to culture. The antibiotic will continue to kill the organism, and your blood culture will be negative. So if at all possible taking blood cultures before you start antibiotics is uh, the best way of optimising their yield. And if you want to take a bunch of blood cultures, you may as well take them all at the same time. Hmm. Anything to add
1: to that, Kyle? Yeah, I guess it's just about... The more sets you take, the more sensitive your test is going to be. So if we look at taking, if you take one set of blood cultures well, which I don't think it's always done, um, sometimes people can't get enough blood. So they only put a couple of mils in each blood culture. Once it goes red, you think that's enough. You need to put the full volume in to get the actual sensitivity. So yeah, if you send one set of blood cultures, so that's 20 mils of blood, you're looking at about 65 to 75% sensitivity. Which isn't great if you send two sets you're looking at 80 to 89 percent and if you get three sets so 60 miles of blood if they've done well uh 95 to 97 percent. so that's looking at the, the several studies i think from this paper the how to optimize the use of blood cultures and diagnosis of bloodstream infections so you, you know it's a huge difference and i think the problem that you get is that you have one blood culture taken just before the patient went on antibiotics potentially wasn't enough blood put in it and uh it's negative or negative, I put in inverted commas, uh, I would always say there's no growth because I think a blood culture isn't really negative. It's just you haven't grown anything in it. It's not a sort of positive, negative test. We have these situations where you say the patient's not bacteremic, but actually you haven't properly examined for it. Like a sensitivity of 65% is is pretty poor, to be honest, when it's such a important thing. So really pushing for three sets of blood cultures, now, uh, I was always told to take it from different sites, but I think James' is right the more blood you take, the higher likelihood you're you're going to capture the organism although and slightly moving on to our next point in terms of timing of blood cultures. so I think there's a, a discussion there.
0: Well, actually, let me say a little bit yeah. about that because um, yeah you're right the the established dogma is to take them from from separate sites now the what are the reasons that you wouldn't want to do this? Well, one, you're going to have mm-hmm. to jab the patient three times, and you may not be able to do it the second or third time because you might not be able to find a vein. If you have contamination, you just you may just have it in the first tube, but you won't have it in the you know the other the other. Let's say you're taking three sets, so six tubes. You won't have it in the rest of them. Whereas if you jab them three times, that's three opportunities to get skin contamination into uh, the blood culture bottles. And when it comes to what you're trying to detect with the blood culture bottles, if you're taking them all at the same time, you're trying to detect low level bacteremias and you're trying to do it before uh, antibiotics have been started. Taking them from different sites wouldn't, wouldn't add to any of that the time to take blood cultures at different times would be if you're trying to diagnose a persistent bacteremia in the context of an endocarditis. So then you would want to take three separate sets of blood cultures at separate times, because then you want to know, is this person bacteremic basically all the time because he's got a valvular vegetation that's throwing off bugs into the blood constantly that's quite a different situation from when you're trying to kind of diagnose a, a patient who's septic, but it's not, uh, doesn't have endocarditis.
1: Mm. Although I would say that if you've got a transient bacteremia, you know, you've got to say an abscess or something and you're, you're occasionally getting a uh, bacteremic episodes. If you take all three sets of blood cultures at the same time, then you might've just taken it at the wrong time. And if you take three blood cultures at a different time, then you might get lucky with one of them. Um, <laughs> So, I don't know. I, I'm not sure it's, it's, it's... Certainly, there's some downsides to taking blood cultures at different times. If you're really hunting hard for that bacteremia, which could be transient and could be potentially low-level and difficult to find, um, then taking it three different times has some benefits, but obviously higher risk of contamination. And one of the other questions, and this you see there in the note a lot, is for the blood cultures when pyrexia... I know this is...
0: This is a favorite, uh, a pet peeve of yours, isn't it, Cal?
1: Further blood cultures, <laughs> if pyrexia, it's over and over again, you know. And um, I read a really interesting paper from the from the 60s or something, and they, they'd done some animal studies and looked at the type. They'd taken sort of serial blood cultures, you know, hour intervals and done a sort of deliberate, introduced bacteremia and compared us to fever spikes and so on. Um, and obviously it's not real world data, but what they showed was that the, the ideal time to take a blood culture was 30 minutes before the development of a fever. Now, I think that's not very useful advice for me to give someone and say 30 minutes before the patient has a fever, or take a blood culture, because nobody can predict that. But I think the point is it doesn't. You, you shouldn't take it at the time that has a fever, or, or rather it doesn't matter. So when people looked at this in the real world and looked at whether samples were taken you know, before, during the fever, after the fever, blah, 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 doesn't matter. As long as they were taken, um, the, t- the exact timing doesn't make um, any difference. So the important thing is you're taking them. Um, so you don't need to wait for the fever. Just go on and take the blood cultures um, and then you'll get the diagnosis quicker. Potentially, you can treat them quicker. Yeah, I agree. And I guess the other thing that happens quite a lot is sometimes blood cultures aren't going to help. So I think the example would be, you've got a patient who's unwell, they're spiking fevers, they're on broad spectrum antimicrobials. They've already had, say, six sets of blood cultures. And the plan day after day is take more blood cultures. And I think that's there's, some, there's a point you get to where more blood cultures aren't necessarily going to help. And you need to be thinking a bit more outside the box. Yeah, that's true. And I
0: guess there's two situations where that happens. One is that you've um, it's not an infection and yep. bacteremia is not a feature and it's something else. And you need to go and look for some other kind of inflammatory condition. And the other thing is it's not an easy-to-culture organism. So the example that you would learn in med school would be the HASEC organisms which cause endocarditis. Are, they're difficult to culture and require prolonged incubation. Some of them require special, uh, special plates uh, in order to grow them up. Or a recent case that we were dealing with, uh, somebody who the team were pretty sure he had uh, endocarditis, and he did. And he had the vegetation and he had 21 blood cultures taken inside 72 hours, all of which were always negative because he had, he had a mold, endocarditis. It was a, an unusual mold. It wasn't aspergillus. It wasn't exfilia. It was something else. And uh, he died. But the way that this organism uh, grew, it doesn't. It didn't grow in in kind of a cellular fashion. It was it was growing as a as a mold. So it had a mycelial uh, network. So it
1: won't grow in fluid. So it won't
0: so it won't grow in fluid. Chunks of it will break off and throw themselves off into the lungs and cause you know emboli, and they'll throw off into the brain and cause strokes. But they won't they won't grow in blood, uh, mm-hmm. and so those situations where you think that there is an infection, but you're not able to culture anything, that that's again where an infection specialist should be coming along to assist.
1: So I think that's us talked about everything that we need to talk about in terms of how to take blood cultures, how many to take. And we've talked already about what happens to blood cultures in the laboratory. So our final little moment of discussion, I guess, will be about the management of bacteremia. Uh, now we're going to try and stay clear of talking about specific pathogens, because I think that's know a very broad uh, discussion um but is there anything particularly to think about in the, m- the management of a patient with a bacteremia
0: yeah so if you uh the, f- the first thing you will hear about uh your patient having a bacteremia is a nice friendly microbiologist will phone you up uh, and say uh your patient has gram whatever in either one or two of his blood culture bottles how is the patient and so on the receiving end of that information, you should go and determine how the patient is. Are they on any anti uh, antimicrobials at the moment? Given the microscopy result, are those antimicrobials appropriate? So if you thought this patient had a urine infection, say, and you have them on gentamicin, and then their blood culture comes back and it, it's growing gram positive cocci in chains, for example. So implying that it's either a, uh, the thing is either a streptococcus or an enterococcus. Well, neither of those organisms are covered by gentamicin. So you would have to change your empirical cover to, to reflect that. When you're uh, being told that the, uh, the patient's blood culture has gone positive, and this, this is the microscopy that they found, determine if they are well or unwell. What are you currently treating them for? And do you need to change that uh, given the new information that you've been given. Mm.
1: Yes, I think, as we've m- mentioned a couple of times now, if your battery make is important, not just because it's a sign of severity of an illness, but it's also important to identify an organism so that you can consider the natural history of the organism. You know, where does it like to spread to? Uh, what particular problems you need to look out for, how long does it need be treated for, and then also the antibiograms. So, what antibiotics are you going to be able to use that are effective? Um, which sort of segues into another aspect of bacteremia in terms of the treatment. So, there's some treatments that you could use for, say, an uncomplicated infection that you wouldn't want to use for bacteremia. So, a good example would be, um, say, urinary tract infection. If you have a organism and it's just in the urinary tract then there's certain antibiotics that will concentrate, so phosphomycin would be a, a relatively good antibiotic for a urinary tract infection because it concentrates into the urine and it's there but if you then say the patient wasn't that unwell but you'd sent blood cultures and uh, the patient was bacteremic, you might not want to use that antibiotic because uh, when given orally it's not going to have sufficient levels in the blood. So there's a lot of, sort of pharmacokinetics to consider if a patient's bacteremic in terms of you want to give them antimicrobial therapy that is going to be in the blood uh, and have sufficient levels in the blood to kill the bacteria that are there. Other antibiotics, they have a high volume of distribution, so they're well spread around the body, or they have low protein binding, so they don't stick in the blood. They spread out into the extracellular fluid, and there's um, certain antibiotics that you wouldn't want to use for bacteremia.
0: Yeah, so your, uh, your example there, phosphomycin, when taken orally uh it can be given iv in high dose but very rarely but other things like trimethoprim for example or kefalexin which are concentrated quite well in the urine but are not kind of considered to get good levels in the blood for Mm -hmm. the reasons that you've mentioned and uh as well did you say yeah ticocyclin i think is another good example
1: so what's an example
0: of a good antibiotic to use for a bloodstream infection
1: I think flucloxacillin or dicloxacillin or cloxicillin that we talked about before mm. you know it's got a high level of protein binding so it sticks around uh, in the blood very well and will will quite quickly um, get rid of any bacteremia and I guess the other thing to think about in terms of the pharmacokinetics is if you've got bacteremia at least, at least initially um you probably want to be giving intravenous therapy because you can give much higher doses and if you consider you know oral antibiotics they need to be absorbed. They need to pass through the liver. They might undergo first pass metabolism, and you're, you might have quite low levels in the blood by the time it gets there. If you give something intravenously, you can be confident that you've got it in the blood, and it's there, it's working yeah. at high levels.
0: Yeah, and there are some antibiotics that you would want to use in severe sepsis that perhaps that you can't give orally. You know, gentamicin is a classic example. Vancomycin, daptomycin. There are ones there antibiotics that are. Uh, IV only which have which have a role in severe sepsis yeah
1: so i think you know I, I guess we don't need to go too much into depth of the management of bacteremia yeah. because it changes depending on which bacteremia you're talking about and we're, we're talking about more specifically yeah and,
0: and also the um the the patient in particular so like the few you know all, all these antibiotics that we've been mentioning in uh, albeit in passing have been in you know, assuming that the patient is immunocompetent if the patient is uh, neutropenic or they're immunocompromised, some other reason, we're using broad-spectrum IV uh, bactericidal uh, antibiotics, preferably a beta-lactam if we can. Um, so I think that all the different uh, bacteremia situations, it's not really worth going into any of the specifics, frankly.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that takes us through our little dive into bacteremia or touching on bloodstream infections we've talked about in general terms uh, some definitions of the terms that are commonly used the importance of bacteremia and uh, how it occurs a little bit about the immunology the route the bacteria take into the blood then the diagnosis and thinking about when to take blood cultures how to take them how many to take what happens then in the laboratory, and then touch briefly on the management of bacteremia. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you have any comments, criticism, feedback, you can send that to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. I've been Callum. I've
0: been Jim. See you next time.
1: Cheerio.